Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. It is, of course, Black History Month. According to Kent State University's website, the first ever month-long celebration of black history was established at the school in Northeast Ohio back in February of 1970. This actually preceded the month's national designation, which didn't happen until 1976. Today, we'll hear from a historian, speaker, and author about the rich history of black culture and achievement here in Columbus and how she's trying to make sure that history is preserved. This is the time of year when people tend to give up on New Year's resolutions, especially those focused on eating better or losing weight. We'll talk to a local dietitian about ways that you can find success with food and lifestyle changes. And we'll get some updates from the state legislature with Doug Petcash from Face the State. First up on Columbus Perspective, Rita Fuller Yates is a Columbus native. She's a graduate of East High School and Ohio University, among other institutions of higher learning. Rita has a passion for black history in Columbus, and she shares her passion through social media, virtual tours, educational videos, community bus tours here in Columbus. And she regularly travels to speak at schools and businesses across the country to help with diversity and inclusion training in conjunction with understanding African-American history through presentations and interactive workshops. Rita, thank you so much for joining us to kick off Black History Month on Columbus Perspective. Thank you for having me, Kate. It is such an honor. I absolutely love talking about this topic. So yeah, thank you for having me. Well, first off, I'm curious, what got you passionate? What got you interested? How did you get hooked on history in Columbus, specifically Black history? Okay, so I've always been a history bluff, you know, that person who enjoys the the past and loves to talk about memories. I have a BA in history from Ohio University. My goal was to teach history. Um, but while I was obtaining my degree, I learned that um, I couldn't remember the dates. I couldn't remember the people's names. I can remember some significant events, but not enough where I felt I qualified to teach. Um, But after I graduated, I went into corporate America and eventually landed into entrepreneurship. And every year on vacation with my family, I still enjoy history. Um, But I learned that I enjoyed more Black history. And then I obtained my master's degree from Savannah College of Art and Design in 2014. And I, uh, at the same time, simultaneously, uh, the Columbus landmarks, along with some local historians in Columbus, had uh, published a a book called the um, African-American Community Report. And it talked about all the original Black communities of Columbus. And I started reading it and was engaged and learned so much about the communities that I had grown up in, specifically the east side of Columbus in what is now King Lincoln Bronzeville. And to get to answering your question, I learned I really was a historian. I really loved the idea of sharing stories and helping to preserve the stories for the next generation. But I also learned that while I was in college, it wasn't geared towards me. 
And it was difficult to, for me to remember information that didn't have a lot to do with me. So I said, let's talk about that conflict of how it is that Black people are disconnected from our story and why, and why many Black people may not be engaged in history as it is that white people are, um, because much of the information is about them. And so once I learned that, I said, okay, I have a responsibility. I do like history. I do like teaching history, but I really enjoy teaching history that pertains to being Black and pertains to uh, the community that I was born and raised in. It's what I like to call history you can touch. And when you touch that history, you can remember it, you can help preserve it, and you can help tell its story. So I hope that sums that up. It sums it up beautifully. And I think as we as a society are reckoning with issues of race and different racial identities in our communities, I think it's always important to remember that as much as we may have been brought up and taught this is American history, the great melting pot. We now are better understanding that really, like you're saying, a lot of stories did not get told. A lot of stories have not been preserved the way that they should have been. And I, I point to the example of of people that get very excited about re- researching their, their DNA through these different services and family trees and things. And I personally have talked to people of color that say, I don't really have that sort of luxury of learning that about my past or my family's past because my ancestors didn't start here and not by choice. You know what I mean? I love that. I love this part of the conversation because I don't think so often America has put people of color, black people, or even any other culture in a box And those boxes have been defined based on the race or the assumption of who those people are. And when I started studying not only local history, this again started uh, teaching me who I was and it motivated me to learn more about my DNA. And so many Black people don't realize that we, a lot of us, come from, especially if you were born in Ohio, a lot of us come from people that were free. In my case, too, if we're looking at our mother and father and our grandparents' lineage, let's say, two of my lineage was never enslaved. And so when you think about learning about who you are, when you know and understand that there are institutions that teach you who you are, you gain that confidence outside of what America has told you who you were. So it does take some bigger perspectives of people like myself making sure that it's clear that America hasn't done a good job talking to other cultures outside of the white culture about its history. But then do we continue to keep it that way or do we have a responsibility? And I think every culture needs to gain leaders and historians and people who can understand their perspective, understand the narrative, and be able to share it from their perspective and narrative. 
unlike someone who's looking in from the outside. Absolutely. Rita Fuller Gates is a Columbus native and a leading historian on the topic specifically of Black history in Columbus. Rita, as you have developed your vast knowledge of Columbus Black history, what have been some of the surprises that uh, were things that you learned about that you never would have expected? <laughs> okay, you're killing me. These are great questions. Um, the biggest opportunity that the state has in explaining our significance to not only uh, Black history, but American history, is we were the Ohio was the example of freedom. We were the first state created from the states of the Northwest Territory that was an example of what freedom would look like with white people and free Black people for the first time in American history. So yes, there were Black people living in the 13 colonies that were free, but they were living amongst the enslaved. Here in Ohio was the first time America would understand what it would look like for these free people to live together on one accord and begin to build what it means to have equality. Um, I don't think we realize that with that uh, accomplishment of being the first city or excuse me, state, we have a responsibility that it took some accomplishments from the African-American, the free African-American, to live in the city of Columbus. The Ohio Black Laws that was established as early as the 1804, which was one year after we were a state, one of the stipulations is that you had to pay $500 in order to settle in the city. Um, $500 in 1803 is worth $12,000 today. Wow. Now, I know many of us are wealthy, but how many of us could afford uh, to live and move to a city and afford to pay that, especially if you came from enslavement? So that let you know that in 1810, the 43 free Black people that were living there were amongst the privilege of Black people, so much so that we don't recognize that as early as 1830, we had a man by the name of Hanson Johnson, who owned not only real estate, but was a barber in a hotel in downtown Columbus. And he was worth, at the time, $35,000. And that today is close to a million dollars. And so these are the stories that we I love to share and scream from the mountaintop, because this was at a time when the rest of the country was enslaved. And so we not only created an opportunity for African-Americans to have freedom, but they created freedom and more opportunity that lasted through legacy, um, even to this very day. Rita, have you come across any unexpected resistance as you've studied and researched and learned about Columbus Black history? Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges of our Black history and local Black history, this I, I'm an advocate of local Black history and not clumping Black history in one entity, 
because I think that is one of the reasons why we're disconnected when it's so far away, when the stories are reflective of something we don't know anything about, um, we sometimes get disconnected from it. So when we talk about uh, the conflicts of sharing our story, is so often it was told from a narrative that wasn't ours. And it made it appear as if, especially during the 1800s, that there were only two or three significant Black people that was making a difference. And we literally have pictures of those individuals and we use them as a pillar in many of our communities to this very day. James Poindexter, let's say, as one of them. But there were so many others doing the work right side, James Poindexter, that I think has been what they call sometimes hidden racism, where you can qualify as people who are making a difference, but it's very limited to the amount of people that were making a difference. So when I start telling the story about James Poindexter, I like to make sure that we're talking about Hanson Johnson and Wyatt Johnson, who was right side next to him. Um, we want to make sure that we recognize John T. Ward, whose legacy uh, still remains as the oldest African-American business, not in the city, not in the state, but in the country. But we recognize that his legacy remains in the city. And what is it that these individuals are doing to help solidify what it is that they learned as unique African-Americans at a unique time through their own legacy? So I, I think to answer your question very clearly, um, there's these not obvious ways that we're um, disconnected from Columbus history. But by researching, you sit and learn what is it that is missing. And it definitely is the parallel of the amount of people that was working to make a difference. Rita Fuller Yates is a Columbus native who is a passionate historian, specifically about Black history, and is an accomplished author. Rita, I understand you recently had a second edition of one of your books come out, right? So in uh, 2021, I um, built the first volume of Columbus Black History uh, book that I thought was amazing. Uh, it created a combination. It was a combination of different errors from the very beginning of Columbus's history in 1803 that solidifies the significance of the African-American community through images. Um, I know we're in a different world now that loves the idea of sharing stories, but more importantly, sharing stories through images. And instead of writing a 300-page book explaining our history, I thought I would do it through images that would help solidify the story, but help make it a little easier for people to learn. Um, so once we did volume one, it took off. It was almost like a yearbook for natives that grew up here in Columbus because a lot of the information that they grew up with 
was in segregated newspapers where many of the people throughout the city didn't even know the significance of Columbus. So I was getting uh, emails and letters and um, Facebook messages from their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren celebrating what it is that they knew their great-grandmother or their great-grandfather never was recognized for. To this very day, we have a Facebook group um, called Columbus Black History, where we're recognizing these individuals. And that's really where at birth, there was a need for this resource. So once we did Columbus Black History book, volume one, picked images from our past, it received such rave reviews. We knew there was so much more content out there that we need to make another, a number two. So in 22, um, or excuse me, 23, that was 22 and 23, I'm sorry. Uh, we launched the second volume and it was a addition to volume one, but on steroids. <laughs> I literally spent a lot of time on the details of the story, a lot more uh, content regarding the history of that uh, particular occurrence. We start out with the talking about the American Revolutionary War, where a man who happened to be my sixth grandfather uh, was uh, a American revolutionary soldier. And he was free where he was one of the 5,000 black men that served in the American revolutionary war. But at the end of the war, he obtained land here in Ohio in Washington courthouse. And again, that's the story that we don't always hear about, especially at that time. In my history book, I was still a slave until the 13th Amendment. So when we learn that most of us, or a lot of us, especially when you come from the Midwest, come from freedom, it changes the narrative. And I think my book helps to not only acknowledge that history, but help to record those individuals that makes that history a reality. It's not just something we're talking about anymore in oral history, like it had to be done in our past. We're able to publish this information and make sure the next generation isn't told that we wasn't significant because now we have the proof that we were. And if you'd like to see some of those historical spots up close and personal, you can join one of Rita's bus tours here in Columbus. Can you tell us a little more about the bus tours that you run focused on Columbus Black history. Absolutely, Kate. So as I've said before, everything has been one thing affecting another, needing and a need and a resource that was necessary. Not anything I think that we just wanted to do. The tours was an added layer of what it meant to not only share our stories, but for people to help see the segregated community that is being um, evolutionized right now and has been gentrified. And if we don't explain to people, we can't always put it in a newspaper. Everybody doesn't read a lot of detail. But if we take them on a tour and you literally point out this is a significant building that was here during segregation that was a staple of a historical moment in American history, 
it helps not only hold the historian accountable or the community leader or the advocate, but it helps everyone hold um, hold the story accountable. Now they know it. Now they can help. Maybe they're a younger audience. That's why it's important that we do tours in the schools, which we do, um, so that those students recognize, oh, no, I was on a tour when I was in high school. And Miss Rita told me what that building was, and she told me why I needed to help preserve it. But if we don't have these lanes of information and these people who are being advocates for our story, and it and it comes a time when it's um, time to evolve a community or change uh, or shift how the community is, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to lose your history if somebody isn't aware of its history. And that's where I think the significance of the tours come in. Uh, we not only um, create stories, but we teach people, specifically children and other cultures, how to celebrate African-Americans in this community. We use pom-poms on the bus. We literally ask them and tell them, this is a good time to celebrate. Because so often other cultures can come into the black community and not know what to do. They're uncomfortable because of what they've heard in the media. Don't say this, don't do this. That's incorrect, that's politically incorrect. So they don't do anything which is a little shameful, not only for us, but for them, because we wanna be celebrated, but so often there's not a resource or a tool that helps to teach that. So on the tour bus, we use uh, the tool of pom-poms. And anytime there's something that we think is great to celebrate, or there's a building that no one knew was significant, or you just learned something new, we throw those pom-poms in the air because I'm an advocate that um, we're celebrated. Black people are celebrated in safe places like on the football field. Pom-poms are everywhere when we make a three-pointer on the basketball court. Well, how often do you see pom-poms come out and celebrate the leaders that's helped to establish the communities that people are thriving, wanting to live in to this very day. That's really where the tours are. And then are the importance of the tours. And then last but not least, um, the community, the communities are being gentrified. And one of the lessons I learned is I grew up in the Bronzeville community and my family sold our house in 2004 that we owned since the 1940s for $36,000, not knowing that, of course, we wasn't educated, that wealth is more about the land. We were always told, well, your house is gonna be demolished because it's not effective, it's not well-kept, the roofs are, fa are failing. Um, but once we learned that other cultures learned really what community wealth was, in 2020, our same house that we grew up in and sold to this one owner, 2004, turned around and sold that house in 2020 for $280,000. So 
So that was an aha moment for me to not only teach history, not only teach what preservation, how to preserve our story, but also teach what it means to have land wealth. You don't want to sell grandma's house because ultimately at the end of the day, it converts back to wealth. And we were so close to downtown that so often other communities wanted access to that land. And if we would have really understood that, then I think we would have preserved our story, our home, and gained equity into our legacy. Rita Fuller Yates, a Columbus historian, public speaker, author. If you would like more information about anything we've discussed, her bus tours that focus on Columbus Black history, or her books, Columbus Black History, Images from Our Past, Volumes 1 and 2. And I also need to mention your children's book, Just a Little Girl from Long Street, for maybe a young reader in your life that needs to know more about our area's history. I would direct you to Rita's website. It's Rita Fuller hyphen Yates, and that's Y-A-T-E-S dot com. Rita, before we finish, was there anything else that we didn't cover? I think um, the biggest aha moment for me as a local historian is that we have a lot of responsibility and more momentum needs uh, put in place in our city, responsibility from our city leaders um, to gain access to this content and make sure that I, being 54 years old, um, that the next generation isn't left to identify who they are. We have a responsibility to be leaders when it comes to telling our significance. And Black people have set side by side their white counterpart to help build this city. And I don't know if we don't become the advocate of this significant story then we're going to lose the idea that we're responsible for telling the story. We are freedom in Ohio. Young people are leaving foster care at the age of 18 with little support and few skills. The National Fund for Foster Children partners with individuals, businesses, churches, and civic groups to provide mentorship, training, and assistance to foster children. Teach a young person a new skill or help them with homework. You don't need to be a foster parent to help a foster child. To find out how you can help, go to fosterchildrenfund.org or contact us on Facebook, National Fund for Foster Children. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. I'm Kate Burdett, and it is now February, one month into the new year, and I've heard from many people, and I know it's not an uncommon thing for folks right now to say, oh, I had a New Year's resolution to eat healthier or maybe I was going to change my diet and try to lose some weight in the new year, and we're already at February, and what have I done? Well, I have some good news for you today. We're joined by an expert. Heather McCormick is a registered dietitian and a nutrition specialist for Mount Carmel Health's Employer Relationship Program. Hi, Heather. Welcome to Columbus Perspective. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me here. I would imagine in your line of work, you hear similar things to what I said about the, uh, I mean, in this case, right now we're talking New Year's resolutions, but probably any time of the year, 
a major struggle for people is eating the right foods, changing bad or maybe we should say unfavorable dietary habits. What would you say is is one of the biggest obstacles people find to having a healthier diet? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. So I you know, I think you know, if you're in the majority, I, w- I would say the majority of people, you know, we're going into th- once you get into like three or four months of that news resolution, you're you're off. You're you're off that. Um, there's just a small percentage of people that actually keep through throughout the throughout the year. And so I tell people, you know, whether it's a news resolution or you know, it's it's a goal. Essentially, that's what a, a New Year's resolution is. Is you know, you can you can do a couple things. You know, you can look at it um, and think. You know, what what was my goal? Take like evaluate what your goal is and what what was your setback? What what happened? And kind of use that as a a way to learn from past experiences. I think another thing, and I think a lot of people fall into, especially with New Year's resolutions, is we we set them huge. They're they're big, and it's it's after a marathon of eating. And I will say, a lot of times it starts around Halloween and goes all the way through the New Year, and then we have this huge goal that we want to do. And it's, it's just too big and we just can't stick with it. You know, um, I think a lot of times those, those goals can be vague, you know, like I want to lose weight, um, super vague, right. Um, maybe taking back and kind of looking at that goal and in, in healthcare, I like to use what what's called smart goals and and my 11 year old rolls his eyes when I, when I even say that, but (laughs) (laughs) it, it, you know, if you don't know what that is, it, it stands for, it's an acronym. It stands for specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. And, you know, taking that, that goal and how can we make it smart and how can we make it specific? How can we make it, measurable is it is it a realistic goal for us to do are we setting a goal for ourselves like in our mind like we want to lose 100 pounds and maybe we can break that down and make it make it a much smaller goal so i think a lot of us we have great expectations and we just need to kind of set back maybe learn from past experiences and really take a look at, you know, what is the goal that we're trying to do and how can we do that? Like what steps and what, or what tasks that do you want to do to, to, to reach that goal? It's kind of like that old saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So you have to find that starting point. And I think you make this great point about people that maybe are setting themselves up for failure by setting too lofty of a goal. So it really is important to stay realistic. So once you have that realistic goal set, is there a good Mm -hmm. first step? Would you say the first step should be go through the kitchen, get all the junk food out, or 
um, you know, go to the store and, you know, buy buy all your produce? Or where would you say is a good point for people to start with a project like this? Yeah, absolutely. It really, I think it really depends on what that goal is. So if if the goal is hey i i want to i want to work on drinking more water and the reason is i i know i drink too much pop i drink too many coffee those specialty drinks i'm i'm drinking my calories there's too 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 many calories from beverages and i really want to work on it i want to drink water i know that's so important for me and so looking and like what you said, okay, what can I do? Okay, look at your house, look at the setting. Um, what what are my what resources can I bring or use to help me to work on drinking more water? Whether it's oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a a water bottle and I'm gonna fill work on filling it up a couple times a day and drinking that or maybe it's oh gosh, I you know, and I hear this, I don't really like water. Uh, what what can you do to maybe you can add some flavor to water without adding calories? Um, so making a list and some of those resources that you think would be helpful for whatever your your goal is and think about not at just at home, but also where else you spend your time. You know, like a lot of us spend a good deal of hours away from home and maybe it's okay. Maybe at work, what can I do at work to, to help me drink more water? Just, you know, for example, so kind of stepping back, looking at your resources and coming up with a plan to help you uh, get to, to that, to that goal. I would imagine enlisting others, close family members that you live with, perhaps, or friends you spend a lot of time with, if they want to kind of join in, I would imagine that can be a really helpful resource as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important to have that support. You know, if we we have that support from our friends and our family, we're going to be more successful. And success is what it's all about when you're talking about better nutritional habits. Heather McCormick is a registered dietitian and nutrition specialist. We're talking about starting off the year maybe with a New Year's resolution that's fallen by the wayside and you want to get back on track with better eating habits, better better nutrition. Heather, what um, what are some tips you give to people that say, oh my gosh, I have the biggest sweet tooth or Oh my gosh, every day between lunch and the end of the work day, I need my 3 p.m. bag of chips from the vending machine. There's always food swaps. And yes, it takes some getting used to. But what are some quick tips you give to people that have maybe those little hazards in their way that could get them off track? Yeah, another another good question, Kate. Uh, That, you know, and I even fall into that too. You know, like being a dietitian, I think some people feel like you don't know what I'm talking about, but I, I do. And and I think a lot of it is, okay, look, kind of look at what your your triggers are. You know, I, I think that all of us have, a, there's some type of trigger that that we run into that 
that triggers us to to go down that road or or that route. And mm-hmm. so taking it back and I think one thing, especially with food and nutrition, that is so important is writing down what you eat. And one of the things that you can do when you do that or keep, you know, keeping track of it, whether it's paper or if it's an app or something like that, but looking at your settings, um, you know, is it a specific setting that triggers you to make different food choices? Um, Is it um, people like certain people or is it things that we keep around the office or we keep at home? And it could be a matter of, you know, if it, if you're at home and you're working from home and you know, in the afternoon you get the munchies and you're, you're getting bored because you've been working all day. Um, it could be a matter of, okay, well, let's, let's look and see what's in our kitchen, what's, what's in our pantry or cupboards and kind of clean it out. Like, um, do, do, um, a, a cleaning of, of your cupboards and your kitchens and, and try not to have that stuff available so you you don't have that that trigger another thing is maybe coming up with other ways you know if you do get the munchies or you have the sweet tooth and and a lot of times those those cravings they don't last very long you know it might be five ten minutes try to do something to distract your mind away from that um maybe it's go for a walk or talk to a friend or doing something just to to distract yourself. Some people do well with chewing gum or, you know, putting a breath mint in their, in their mouth, just so they have something, something in their mouth. And that helps them get through that, that craving. Mm. And I think it's also important to point out that we all have our own unique emotional relationship with food that goes way back and is all kinds of complicated. And I I always cringe when I hear people say, oh, I was naughty today. I ate this. Oh, and, yep. and, and assigning, I think, give yourself a break too, right? Like assigning those feelings and those value judgments. Look, we all need to eat to survive. And it's at this point about making those choices that are going to benefit us down the road, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I completely agree. And I think that everybody has those those setbacks or we have those weekends where, oh, I ate this and I didn't really, you know, I, I feel bad. I didn't I didn't want to do that. And I think the important thing is one of the most important things is that we bounce back from that. And, you know, you we say you can't do anything. You can't change what you did yesterday, but you can today. You can make great choices today and not giving up on whatever your your goal or resolution is, not giving up on that and and just, you know, just trying to stay with it. And if you have a goal and another thing you can do is kind of anticipate, you know, is there, are there things that are going to come up that I anticipate will happen? You know, what are some roadblocks that might happen and come up with a plan for that? So you already know what to do when you come into that situation. 
Planning can be so important and in my personal experience can do such a good job of preventing nutritional choices that may not be as efficient as you need them to be. <laughs> Let's put it that right. way. Right. Exactly. You know, I Planning packed my is... lunch, brought it to work. I don't need to order DoorDash kind of thing. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I think planning is is one of the most important things that you can do. I think when we plan, we're more likely to stick with it. We're going to be healthier. We we just eat we eat less salt, less fat, less calories, less sugar. Mm-hmm. Um we save money too. Absolutely. On that topic, um we hear a lot, of course, about inflation and just the, you know, the price of everything going up. And it is considerably more costly when you go to the grocery store and, as they used to say, you shop the outside of the store rather than the aisles where there's the packaged, more processed uh, items. Do you in your field have any any tips for people who look at that budgetary line item and go, oh, I don't have a lot of wiggle room here. I want to do better. I want to eat healthier. I want to feed my family more nutritious meals but I also can't, you know, go broke. Right, right. That's that's hard. It's tough. Um, I know grocery stores. The prices of everything is is just so much higher than it was a few years ago. I think that it's important to when you are planning to look and see what's on sale. If you're trying to save money, you know, look at those store circulars, um, see what's on sale, go to shop, go to stores that tend to have cheaper, you know, foods like Aldi's, they have fresh produce. You can get brown rice, you can get uh, quinoa there. I mean, they, there are healthy options at, at those grocery stores. And, I think the more that we plan that it's just going to just help health wise and also our pockets, like you said, Kate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Heather McCormick, registered dietitian and nutrition specialist for Mount Carmel Health's employer relationship program. Um, You have given us some great information today, but I cannot let you go without asking you one personal question. What is your go to when you want to treat? I want a treat. Oh my gosh. Just one? You don't have to you don't have to limit it. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> I I like chocolate. Mm. Uh, I really do. I do like chocolate. So that's kind of my my go-to. Uh darker the better. Mm-hmm. Uh but you know, just a little bit goes a long way. <laughs> and that's a great reminder. All things in moderation. Yes, yes, I agree. Well, I thank you so much for your time today, Heather. It's, you know, it's one of those things you've got to constantly be thinking about, okay, my next meal and planning for maybe, all right, this week's meals. But I think with a little bit of of this insight, we can all make some, some healthier choices. Yes. Thank you so much, Kate. Thinking of buying a home? The Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes grants for grads, and your choice down payment assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit myohiohome.org. 
Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. Now courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. The controversial transgender health care and women's sports bill will become law in Ohio in less than three months. Supporters say it's a good bill to protect kids from making permanent changes to their bodies. In fact, it's called the SAFE Act, or Save Adolescents from Experimentation. LGBTQ supporters say it's an assault on transgender people. 10TV's Carly Dion wraps up what happened and who said what about it. Our movement for trans liberation will not be stopped. Protesters gathering at the State House hoping to make one thing clear. They will keep fighting. They can pass the horrid bills that they have, but we will continue fighting. We're going to build the mass movement that's needed to continue advancing the democratic rights of trans people. This comes as the Senate voted in a supermajority to override the governor's veto of House Bill 68, also known as the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act. Governors and presidents of the United States States and mayors have executive authority, but they only have the authority that either the Constitution or the legislature gives them. The bill bans all forms of gender-affirming care for minors across the state. It also bans transgender student-athletes from playing in girls' and women's sports. Governor DeWine standing firm in his stance that decisions about gender-affirming care for minors should not be left up to the government to decide. I think parents should make those decisions and not not the government. You know, seems to me that's what we believe in is families and families making those those difficult decisions for their own children. One week after his veto, Governor DeWine issued an executive order banning transgender surgeries for minors, but it did not ban hormone therapy and puberty blockers. Lawmakers like Nikki Antonio say this decision by the Senate is a shame. Ohioans gave us a resounding vote twice saying stay out of our medical decisions, but yet this legislature, the supermajority, continues to push. As for what happens next, lawmakers and political analysts believe a court challenge is likely. Ohio State University Professor Emeritus Paul Beck believes the court would uphold it. Certainly the Supreme Court of Ohio is inclined to be supportive of things that the legislature wants to do, despite the governor's Now he says some doctors across the state will be put in a position to make difficult decisions moving forward. I think that that, uh, doctors simply are not going to perform any kind of gender-affirming surgery or, or provide any kind of medication there because they'll be afraid of being prosecuted. Carly Dion, 10TV News. Again, House Bill 68 officially becomes law in just under three months. Leaders on both sides expect the bill to face court challenges. Senate President Matt Huffman believes the bill is constitutional. Laws that are passed, legislation is passed, has a presumption of constitutionality. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that courts can't say we think the legislature was wrong about that. And certainly there's going to be a lawsuit, but um, we all took an oath to uphold the Constitution. If I thought it was unconstitutional, I wouldn't support it. At least 22 other states have passed similar legislation. Most face or have faced court challenges. We'll continue to follow the story, of course. 
Lawmakers made another big move, overriding Governor DeWine's veto on a flavored tobacco bill. The bill will stop cities from being able to ban flavored tobacco sales in stores, something the city of Columbus started on January 1st. This means that 90 days from now, stores in Columbus and across the state will be allowed to sell flavored tobacco products on their store shelves again. Governor DeWine was adamant that overriding his veto would be a bad idea, but lawmakers say it's necessary. It is a big win for big tobacco. Uh, They've lobbied this. Uh, They've been all over this. They want this. Uh, Children are going to suffer because of this vote today. The sale of this product in particular affects the revenue to the state of Ohio. That's, of course, the revenue that we, for the most part, are distributing to local governments to use. And in a statement, Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein says the city is weighing all options, quote, which certainly includes filing a lawsuit challenging this legislative overreach. Well, do you feel the cost of living is just too high and that we pay way too much in taxes? State legislators plan to introduce two bills in the state house to eliminate the state income tax. The bills would gradually reduce the income tax over the coming years with a plan of phasing it out entirely by 2030. State income tax is a major source of funding for schools and Medicaid. Lawmakers explained why they think the tax cut is needed. This is a long process, but we now have the, the end in sight. Since 1984, we've been cutting off brackets, we've been cutting off rates. But now, with 2030 as our goal, we have the will, we have the desire, and we have the plan to have Ohio reclaim its place as the economic engine of the Midwest. Now, these bills would not impact local income taxes. State lawmakers are also introducing a bill to expunge crimes for survivors of human trafficking. Under the current law, survivors can have their records expunged for the crimes of soliciting, loitering, and prostitution. This new legislation would expand the list to some misdemeanors and fourth and fifth degree felonies. The goal is to give survivors a chance to have a better life. Carrying a criminal record can be a major roadblock to gainful employment, stable housing, and educational opportunities, all of which are crucial when a survivor is trying to exit their situation. Providing an expanded pathway to expungement for victims and survivors provides these individuals with a path forward. The bill is being introduced in the House. Governor DeWine also announced millions in grants to increase driver training options for teens. 34 grants have been awarded, totaling $4.5 million. This will increase driver training capacity at nearly 100 locations across the state. Grants were awarded based on the amount of funding available and community need. Turning now to the 2024 presidential election. With the candidate pool in the GOP presidential primary down to two and with former President Trump's apparent lead, speculation is swirling about who he will choose as a running mate for vice president this time around. Some people have pointed to Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio because of their work together in the past. We asked him about the possibility of a run for VP. One of the most important ways that I can help President Trump, but most importantly help the people of Ohio, is by being a good senator. And that's where I plan to stay for the next few years. We'll see what happens. But I like my job and I'd like to stay in it. Now, in that same interview, Senator Vance also said he supports the override of the governor's veto of House Bill 68. He calls the veto a mistake. He says the benefits of gender-affirming care are not understood yet and says overall he believes the bill is right for the state. 
I think it's right for Ohio to follow the science here. And importantly, I think it's right to protect women's sports, right? You see these these athletic competitions where you have a, a, a recently transitioned person who's just blowing past the competition. How is that fair to our young girls? Uh, I don't think that it is at all, and I think we need to protect women's sports. That's another thing this legislation does. I love this song. I love nachos. Loving everything? You might be buzzed. You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzz warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. We've been focusing on the state Senate overriding Governor DeWine's veto of the transgender medical care and girls and women's sports bill and other issues in Ohio government and politics. I am joined by two reporters with a lot of experience covering the state's politics and government. Joe Ingalls is a reporter and producer with Ohio Public Radio and Television. And Jeremy Pelzer is the politics reporter for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thank you both for being here. You've covered this issue for a long time. Both of you have. Joe, what's your big takeaway from you know, where it stands today after the, the Senate override? Well, this, this override happened in January ahead of a primary that is going on, a Senate primary going on here in a couple months. So, you know, they wanted to, the legislature wanted to get this done to especially send a message. Uh, I don't think we've seen the end of this yet. It has 90 days until this takes effect. And during that 90 days, I think we're like, to see a lawsuit. Not sure when it will be filed or not sure exactly who will file it, but uh, I think we're, we haven't heard the end of this yet. Yeah, and Jeremy, how about you? Well, this current legislature, Republicans have the largest majority that any party has had in the Ohio legislature since single-member districts were created in the 1960s, and so this shows that that dominating Republican supermajority is to the one to the right of the governor on a number of social issues. Uh, they also overrode a different veto governor issued uh, regarding local flavored tobacco bans. So now local uh, cities like Columbus can Aren't no longer to, yeah. they are no longer allowed to ban flavored tobacco. And this shows that with that many Republicans in the legislature, they are not afraid to use that dominance to override the governor on these issues. And it is possibly coming into a litigious time, too, because Zach Klein, the Columbus City Attorney, also told us that you know, the city is looking at all of its options in regards to the flavored tobacco ban bill, uh, veto and override, excuse me, and planning a lawsuit as well. Um, Joe, you talked to the ACLU uh, mm -hmm. this past week about the potential for lawsuits. Did they give you any indication of timing if, and if they're going to do it? Well, uh, we're not going to see any lawsuits by the time this show airs, but they have 90 days. And typically, if you look at the way uh, things go down, um, they, they take a little bit of time to get the lawsuit together and before they file it. So it's likely that uh, this won't be filed for a while yet, but they won't take too long. I mean, they're going to want to try to put this on hold, have a court put it on hold. And if you look at other states where similar legislation has been uh, proposed, it seems like they, they have been successful for the most part in other states at getting things like this put on the shelf, at least for the time being. Yeah, I believe Ohio is the 23rd or 24th mm -hmm. state, depending on you know where you look. But uh, of the 22 so far that have passed similar legislation, most, if not all, have faced or still face challenges. Right. So it certainly seems, I mean, and even the other day when we were talking to Senate President Huffman, he said, there's going to be a lawsuit. Yeah. 
you know, so it's it's not unexpected. Oh, it's it's kind of it's it's very expected at this point. Uh, one state, Arkansas, I believe, has had a similar law to 68 already uh, thrown up by the courts, and a handful their laws are currently on hold because of court decisions. Let's move on to another another big issue in the state, and that is the issue two, uh, the legalization of recreational marijuana here in Ohio. The voters passed that pretty overwhelmingly in November. The Senate acted quickly to try to get things rolling in terms of where it can be sold, saying that you know medical dispensaries can, can sell it right away. Also, uh, a measure to expunge records for people who maybe have like petty possession charges and everything. But the House... It hit the brakes, mm-hmm. Joe. That it seems like we're we're waiting to see what they what they do, and it might be a wa- a while of a wait. Yeah, it probably will be after the primary kind of wait. Actually, um, you look at, at a lot of these Republican districts, and and um, a lot of them actually voted for issue two, which puts the legislators, the Republican legislators who are against it, it puts them in a quandary of sorts, because now they're, you know, if they go too hard, um, you make it too hard to get the marijuana or make it difficult to access or, um, you know, price it too high, whatever they do, they could alienate their own voters in their districts, and they don't want to do that. And we've heard a lot of the things that, like, the negotiations right now are over the revenue, the tax rate, um, and then who will get the revenue. What are you hearing along those lines from the folks? Well, it seems at this point that lawmakers have basically agreed that the basic things that if you ask the average voter who voted for issue two what they want are going to stay in place. So, for example, that one, of course, that it's going to be legal, and then uh, the number of plants you're allowed to grow, that seems to be decided on. But it's the other things that you're saying, that uh, like where the tax revenue is going to go, what the tax rate should be. Uh, lawmakers also want to take, uh, they want to close what they see as a number of loopholes. So, for example, uh, they're worried that uh, the number of plants that each household is going to uh, allowed to grow, that that could be exploited, that a bunch of people could theoretically get together to have a household, and then it would turn into a basically a grow operation. So they want to close uh, what they see as loopholes like that. Mm-hmm. But it's really been House Speaker Jason Stevens who's been holding this back. As you said, uh, President Huffman and the Senate, and definitely the governor, have been very, very forward about wanting to address this. Uh, I believe the governor Uphold said, the will of the people. Uh, uphold the will of the people, but also, uh, as the governor said the other day, that it's sort of a goofy situation that marijuana is right now legal to smoke recreationally in in the state of Ohio, but it's not legal to sell it. And so you have this, as he says, a goofy situation. Or legal to buy it, because there's nowhere legally to buy recreational marijuana at this point. Speaker Stevens also said, you know, he he didn't feel that there was a rush in in this, that they want to be deliberative about it and, and get it right. And one of the issues he talked about was, I think, kind of what you were getting at, too, is can someone grow process and sell mm-hmm. from their, you know, I guess it would be from their home or something like that. So a lot of these issues are swirling out there. Meantime, the people who supported it are still waiting. And you got to remember where Speaker Stevens is from. He's from southern Ohio in an area that, that definitely uh, voted for this, that it's an area that could grow, where people could grow marijuana. Um, and so he's hearing, um, you know, he's not hearing the same thing in his Republican district that some of the other Republicans 
Republican lawmakers might be hearing. There's there's kind of a split on this, and they have to be kind of careful where they tread on this. In the meantime, the negotiations behind the scenes go on. Again, that's Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM 97.1 The Fan.